This week's show is brought to you by Horizon Books in Capitol Hill, serving Seattle book lovers for 47 years with one of the largest and finest used book collections in the city. Mention Upzones at the register this week for a 10% discount. It's Valentine's Day coming up, folks. What better way to show someone you care than getting them a nice, long, luscious read from Horizon Books, including Black Ink from this week's guest, Stephanie Stokes Oliver. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is Upzones. You have to elect yourself daily. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Hola, peoples. This is UpZones. This is Ian Martinez, your host. Oh, man, I can't wait for today's featured guest Stephanie Stokes Oliver. She's a longtime journalist and magazine editor, former editor-in-chief of Heart and Soul magazine, editor at Essence, current author Black Ink. Her latest book uh, deals with literary legends on the peril, power, and pleasure of reading and writing, featuring essays with Frederick Douglass, Solomon Northrup, Booker T. Washington, Zora Neale Hurston, James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, all the way up through Marlon James, Roxanne Gay, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and of course, President Barack Obama. You won't want to miss reading this. And I had just a fantastic opportunity to speak with Stephanie. She was great. Came down to the bookstore, spoke with me for about half an hour, 45 minutes. We just chatted on all things literary, what it meant to be a young woman in the 70s and 80s at Glamour coming out of Howard. That was not necessarily the most common thing uh, happening at the time and uh, kind of how she got where she is, what she's doing these days in Seattle. What a darling interview. Anyway, here's my chat with Stephanie. from here i was born and raised yeah tell me a little about your folks where'd you where'd you come up and what'd they do uh my dad came here in 1943 from kansas a boeing aircraft company was hiring and it was around the time of the war where people were coming back from the war and staying here particularly african-americans instead of going back home to the south and segregation they stayed in seattle my father thought that a lot of those people might need an attorney as oh, they, he was a lawyer. Yes, my father was a lawyer. Gotcha. And he realized that some of the people that came here, the wives from the South didn't want to move up here. And so unfortunately, but fortunately for him, they needed an attorney to get divorces. So okay. that's, he became the first black lawyer in private practice in Seattle. My, uh, my best friend growing up uh, comes from an old African-American D.C. family. Mm. And they've been in the same neighborhood for generations. And one of the things that they experienced was there was a black upper middle class. Yeah. And it was very segregated, even though it wasn't a formal segregation. It was more mm-hmm. of a de facto. Mm-hmm. And I found, or he, he's told me, really, it wasn't my experience, but he's told me that um, a lot of that changed after the riots when Dr. Mm. King was assassinated mm-hmm. and it changed the entire character mm. of the neighborhood. Is that the experience that happened in Seattle or was it a little different here? In Seattle in the 60s, um, first let me say my, my, that was my father coming and oh, then my, yeah. grandmother, oh, yeah, yeah. my grandmother came the same year on my mother's side. Mm-hmm. She came from Selma. My mother grew up in Selma, Alabama. And um, my grandmother moved here when my mother and her sister were in college. 
she met a man. Uh, she, she and my, my uh, grandfather were um, divorced, and she met a man on a train going to visit my grandfather's sister in Los Angeles, and he said he lived in Seattle, and they corresponded, and he asked her to marry him, and she moved to Seattle. Wow. Moved, yeah, right, and Yesler Terrace, which was, uh, well, actually, he had a big house, but eventually they got another place on Yesler Terrace. So the, my mother, to have a place to come home to, had to come to Seattle, and she came and met her first husband, who was a Tuskegee Airman, and my aunt met her husband, and they all settled here. And then a lot of their friends came from uh, Selma also. So they all went to Mount Zion Baptist Church. My dad went there, and my mother went there, and that's where they met. I see. There. Yes. So what my my her first husband um, unfortunately passed away in an accident um, near. Fifteenth uh, Street, that where that bridge goes Traffic over. Accident. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry to hear that. Unfortunately, but uh, and she had my son, my brother, who was six months old. So two, three years later, she married my dad, who her first husband had seen catching the bus on Twenty Fourth and Union, w- waiting for a bus, and he pointed him out and said, "That's our NAACP president. We're proud of him." Oh wow! So she felt that she got an endorsement. She from got an endorsement. First husband oh, for the second husband. That's special. <laughs> yeah. That's really special. Yeah. So they got together, and then and I had a brother. He had, I, my father had a, had a daughter from his first marriage, so he says, she had one, I had one, we had one, right. and they're all ours. Yeah, I'm from a mixed family as well. It's a special experience as well. I have adjusting that has to happen, I imagine. But you were the baby, so you just kind of yeah, came into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all, it was all love. Right. That's <laughs> so you grew up here. I grew up here. I went to Madrona grade school. Got it. K through three. Okay. Then we moved to Mount Baker from the CD. We lived on 25th between Pike and Union. I lived over on yeah. Cherry for years. You did? Yeah. Oh, okay. My mom used to teach at Horace Mann Oh, school. got you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I went to Madrona. Then we moved to Mount Baker. And I went to John Muir, Asa Mercer, and Franklin. Okay. So you're a recent transplant is what you're saying. <laughs> Born and bred, but I, then I moved. Away. I went to college, and then I didn't come back for quite some time. And, and that was in Ohio, in Washington D.C. Washington, Howard D. University. Oh, you went to Howard? Yeah, oh, go Buffalo. That's yeah. where I lived. I lived uh, when I did live in D.C. I lived in uh, Bloomingdale. Okay. Yeah, you know the neighborhood, like two neighborhoods over from where Howard is. Okay, great. Yeah, what do you know? Oh, Small. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're at, you're at college now. I'm imagining you as a young person really trying to fuel that fire. You're you're probably doing some writing on the school newspaper. Yes, and you name the it. Hilltop, where Zora Neale Hurston worked Mm -hmm. at one point, but we didn't know that at the time because she hadn't had a resurgence yet when I was there, just on the verge of that, when uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God was reissued. But I was on the... um Hilltop newspaper and actually did not know I was wanted to be in journalism until Howard started a school of journalism while I was there. And you transferred over? Yes, up from English. And that's that was my major. Yeah. In, in retrospect, journalism might have been a better, <laughs> more practical choice. But you know, I, I didn't know that English. Did you? That it was about English writers in England. Yeah. Well, I thought it was about English right. uh, language. Right. So it was a better. Um, it was a better fit for me. Yeah, and I think in the in the exactly in the moment when I was attending undergrad was th- there was beginning to be a shift of you know dismantling a little bit of that anglocentricity mm-hmm. right and having it become more of a mastery of mm-hmm. the english language and literature in- written in english worldwide right mm-hmm. so but yeah I, I know exactly what you're saying and we took our comps your comprehensive exam at the end of four years and it's all british and a couple yeah. american you know anglo-american writers Sir milton yeah. Yeah. all that which is important right sure it's very important, absolutely it's, it's not the it's end. a major it's a, you know to immerse yourself in it right 
but I, I think journalism was more helpful to me to be a magazine editor right? because it gave me the mechanics of how to do a story with a lead, a middle, and an end, and to know that the most important thing should be in the front of the story, and then you can chop from the end. Things like that. Right. Were, the pyramid. Yes. I remember. Yes. Um, that's fantastic. And so are, how did you move from... Howard, you're, you know, your kid, you're 20, 21, 22, whatever it is, and all of a sudden it's time to go. How did you end up getting hooked up over at Glamour? Oh, I had a fun experience because I would come back to Seattle in the summer, and at one point I thought I was going to follow in my father and my brother's footsteps to be an attorney, but I, instead of going to the jail to take people's depositions, I was going to the department store at lunchtime for the fashion shows they were having. So Just pure pleasure. Just yeah, you wanted, know, yeah. I just liked that. I heard that Mademoiselle Magazine was coming to town, and I said, oh, I have to go to the fashion show, at the, which is now Macy's. It was called the Bon at the time. So when I went to that one event, I noticed that there were women there that were over that were from the magazine that were doing the fashion shows and things. So I went up to one of them and said, "How did you get your job?" And she said, "Oh, I just got the August issue, and there was an application in there to be on our fashion board, and I got it from my school, and then I started working there." I did exactly what she did. I got the um, August issue of the Mademoiselle magazine. I filled out the application. No one else from Howard knew about this, so I had no competition, and I got to be college a rep from Howard. Oh, that's great. So this was during school. Yes. This is when you came So when I was in school, I was doing that. I was in the summers. I was coming here to work. But then the next year, because I was at at Mademoiselle with the college board, I got to work there as an intern in the summer. Right. So I worked at Vogue. They only had, Condé Nast only had five magazines then. Now they have like 15. Right. um, I'm sure it was very well paid work too. Oh yeah. (laughs) Right. No. Um, it was it was a good experience, but most of the people that worked there were children of well-to-do parents, That's and right. they underwrote their um, apartments, and some were living on Park Avenue in greater apartments, but weren't getting any more money than I, who was living in Bedford-Stuyvesant, uh, but with a wonderful family had taken me under wing. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah, okay, so you had it was that really lovely. And how? And so that's your first summer, and then that goes well. So then they ask you back. Is that kind of that's the right? Yeah. That's exactly what happened. I went back to school, and then in March they sent me a letter saying I could come back for ten dollars more. So I was making one hundred twenty dollars a week. Okay. Big money. money. But then the rent was only one sixty, so it wasn't so bad. So you were making it rain. That's fantastic. Well, talk me through. Okay, so you're, you know, you're African American. It's. I don't want to date you too much, but it's what nineteen eighty or so, nineteen eighty. Yeah, in the seventies. Okay, so I don't imagine that Glamour and Vogue and all of the other high fashion magazines are catering to young black women at that time. Believe it or not, the staffs of the magazines, in particular, depending on who the editor was, um, was diverse. For example, Mademoiselle had five or six black women on there, and I really wanted to work there, but they they put me on Glamour because they didn't have any black folks there. So Mm -hmm. I was the first, or the only, at least at that time, to work at Glamour. And then uh, Vogue had some, uh, but they were working in other departments, not editorial. That was the prime thing, to be an editorial. Even in Glamour, the job I had was to go out to department stores and give fashion shows and tell people what color um, eyeshadow they should wear or or that they would go down to the cosmetic counter and buy. And I had fun with that because I got to travel. We stayed at the best hotels in the country, as you might imagine. But I always wanted to be in what they call the making of the magazine, to give ideas of what should be in the magazine. Sometimes they let me sit in on those meetings, but they didn't ever move me into that department. And 
to this day, I could probably count on one hand how many women have been in that department. Interesting, in that. interesting. Even in yeah. a, uh, you know, your average person on the street hears this a lot about sports, which is to say the NFL, which is, you know, what, 90%, maybe 70 to 90% African-American, and there might be mm-hmm. one black owner and, yeah. you know, six, yeah. five or six black right. coaches, right, as a whole league. Right. And it sounds like the same dynamic is occurring across gender lines with respect to the editorial at these magazines. Yes, yes. Well, actually, uh, gender, uh, for example, the men, there were men that were editors-in-chief of Good Housekeeping and you know a lot of these magazines, and men were all in the uh, advertising department, the publisher, all the sales reps. But now, that even that, all oh, those things have changed. That, they've changed. Yeah, okay. as well as the editorial, which is the department that says the, uh, gives the ideas and executes what's going to be on the pages of the magazine. Mm-hmm. That was what I saw as the power seat. I think and, so. And um, it happened, though, that I gave one idea. I wanted to write for them also, and I submitted a story that they didn't accept. But when I sent it to Essence, they not only liked the story, they paid me double for it. Oh, wow. So, well, so them. you said power. That's an interesting word because it resonates with having read your book. And uh, you describe the experience of, you know, keep me honest here, right? Because I don't want to put words in in your mouth or in your pen, as it were. You describe the experience of black authorship moving from peril to power to pleasure. Um, And so it sounds to me like there is power in that act of getting your words out there and getting to decide what gets published and getting to decide what gets written. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how your early years struggling, you're kind of a hustling journalist and trying to make it happen. How does that inform where you came later to publish Black Ink? I was really trying to be an author, even when I was a writer and editor. I did photo shoots for the magazines, particularly at, at Essence. And and I just wanted to have my name on a book, just like Laura Ingalls Wilder and Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison. Alice Walker was big at the time. I really liked Nora Ephraim, who I thought had such great humor. And even now, I don't feel that we have enough humor in the books that are published by African Americans that get are able to get published, but I was trying very hard to do that, and I just did not get. Um, I had one agent that said I needed to write fiction first, like Alice Walker had done. She wrote fiction, then she was able to do um, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, which was an essay book. Got it. So I went to Paris. I tried okay. to do the little Baldwin, uh, yeah, the Baldwin, uh, Richard Wright Richard thing, Wright, yep. Josephine Baker, and I went for a summer. My husband was working, and my daughter would come here to Seattle every summer and stay with my parents. So I took this summer off of my 40th birthday and went to stay there. And I had a childhood friend from Seattle who lived in Lyon, France. So first I went to Paris and stayed for a month by myself. And then I went to visit her and was trying to write and write and write. And I wrote this book called Style, a novel. And when I came back and tried to sell it, I realized it just really was like the worst. I was not a fiction writer. I'd never even written short stories. I forgot one character that was in the beginning and would finish it. (laughs) And their person was, what happened to him? Where's the editor on this, right? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So I had the agent wanted to submit it. Actually, she submitted the book to um, Jackie Onassis, who mm. was at uh, Simon, Simon & Schuster at the time, or Random House. She was in publishing at the time, and she liked the book and gave me a laundry list of things of how to fix it. And then, unfortunately, she passed away. Right. So she was not able to, um, I was not able to have her as an editor. But I, I was had. so honored. Yeah. I kept begging my um, a- agent at the time to send me the facts that she had sent for that. But of course, she kept the you know, the original and never gave me a copy. But um, that encouraged me. But it wasn't until I got this 
the agent I have now, Victoria Sanders. Once I was an editor at um, Heart and Soul magazine. That's yeah. She's Seattle based. She's no, York. she's in New York. New York, got it. Yeah. I imagine yeah. actually most of it. Yeah, I was in New York for twenty something years. Okay. So she suggested that I write the kind of books that the kind of articles I write in the magazine I should translate into a book. So my first book was called Daily Cornbread. Yep. It was three hundred sixty-five secrets for a healthy mind, body, and spirit. And the book, the magazine I was editing at the time was a mind, body, spirit. Health and fitness. That's right. You, you actually had the experience. I wanted to touch on that. You'd run the editorial for a magazine at one point. Yeah, I had the um, the privilege, <laughs> the honor of be, of having my dream come true in magazines. I wanted to be an author, but I had this parallel track of wanting to be an editor in chief of a magazine, to be the first black editor in chief of a mainstream women's magazine. Right. And although um, Heart and Soul was exclusively for African American women, I, it was at a mainstream publisher, Rodale, that publishes Men's Health Got it. and Prevention Magazine. And I really loved working working there. What's the biggest thing you don't miss about, about that life? New York managing people. I just thought, well, I know I have to write this story and it has to be in at a certain day. I don't want to be hammering somebody else or when are you going to turn it in and monitoring people and right. stuff like that. So you're a yeah. self, you're kind of a, I'll take care of myself. Yeah, kind of independent sure. worker, you know, and that's what writers do, you know, right. we were self-propelled. So we kind of assume everybody else either is or should be. Right. So that was the hardest part. But most people, um, I, I worked with such a great team of smart brilliant, intelligent editors that I learned, I learned so much from everybody I worked with. Right. But it seems like what I hear both in your writing, but also just talking to you now is in many respects, writing is a power act for you. You get, you both get and sort of project power through getting words down and getting them out into the public eye. Would you, would you agree with that? What writing gets you, particularly when you get published, is a voice mm. to express yourself to others and to have a platform to do that on. Right. One can have a lot of opinions. And now, fortunately, though, social media lets us have a voice in a way that we didn't when I was first starting out. But writing uh, does give one a, a bit of a certain degree of power by being able to share your own vision and opinions. Right. Well, you have a very evocative example in the book, in the intro, about Solomon Northrup, who, if I'm not mistaken, literally, uh, this is the 12 years of slave, slave. Uh -huh. character that many, right. many folks might know, real real life person as well. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, literally uh, uses the bark of a tree yes. to write his way into freedom, right? He, he writes his way home. Can you talk a little bit about how that, not only that story, because I just gave you everything I know, no, but okay. also how that impacted you enough so that it would make its way into your intro? I went to see the movie, 12 Years a Slave. My husband took me to see the movie here in Seattle in the U District. And I was pretty traumatized. I was traumatized by that movie, I have to say. It was so violent, I felt, and so difficult a book to uh, a movie to digest and I just felt that I needed to read the book because I felt that his own voice was would be different and sure enough the book itself was so poignant and was so deep and said what one thing that a movie can't give you and that's what he felt a with a movie you're seeing what happens but you may not really know what he thought what he felt did he miss his children when did he miss his children? Yeah. When did he think about his wife? Those kind of things. So there's the, a deep color to how someone feels that just never doesn't yeah, matter. It's the best yeah, filmmaker yeah, yeah. in the world. Yeah, yep. yeah. So um, I read the book, and in reading the book, I realized that there was a nuance about it that I didn't pick up from the movie, and that is that for him to get free, he had to be able to write a letter back to where he was captured from in 
um, upstate New York to get the white person who champions him there um, to come to get him because he had been captured by two men that told him he was going to go to Washington, D.C. and have a gig over the weekend playing the violin. Right. And they put him back into slavery. But he could not let anyone know he knew how to read and write because it was against the law. So he had to fake illiteracy first. But um, in his quiet moments, he was trying to figure out for nine years he lived without a piece of paper or a pen. And finally, his mistress sent him to get some stationery. And he took one of the sheets, and he just was so upset at himself that he had to steal one sheet of paper from all the sheets that out of her stationery. But he took a sheet, and then he made the uh, the pen out of the I think a duck's feather, and um, the, for the quill, and then he had some coal, I think it was, to, oh, to, make, yeah. to make the ink. Right. And then he had to hide it under the slat in his cabin so that no one would discover it. Including potentially other, other slaves. Right. Who might you know, right. Right. turn informer as, Can you as believe it believe yeah. that? And then he tried, then there was a, a white man who was trying out to be the overseer on that plantation, and he thought he was he could trust him, and he said something to him about that, to mail it. After you write it, then you got to mail it. And you're not going to go just, you know, if you're a slave, you can't just march yeah, off right, the plantation, right. go to the post office and Send get a it stamp. Priority. Yeah. yeah. So um, he tried to get this man to take it and, and post it for him. And... Unfortunately, that person betrayed him and told his master. So he had to then make up a story. Oh, you know, he wouldn't do that. He's just trying to be the overseer here. And so he's just telling you a tale because he knows I'm the, I'm the supervisor now. And what a great metaphor for publishing. Like yeah. This power that the people who already have kind of arrived or been given the power have over every other writer who's trying to have a voice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. W.E.D. E. Boyd said in his excerpt from one of his books that... You, to get published, you have to go through this layer of white people have to approve it. And, mm, you know, yeah. that's largely the case 100 years later as publishing, you know, is still uh, dominated and not as not as diverse as it could be dominated by whites. Yeah. I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me that that particular scene resonated with you just as a woman of color trying to, you know, who very clearly speaks fluently that language, but I'm sure had to go through a the same process maybe if we were learning a foreign language, right? The, the language of glamour and the language of... Condé Nast and what it takes to get the approval, to get the publishing deal, to finally now be through that gate and writing about writing and actually being able to give a very, you know, stylized and intellectualized perspective on the history of writing and getting into the public sphere, the voice of black authors. Thanks for saying that. I guess that it would be the case. Uh, I feel that everything that happened up to this point came, culminated in Black Ink because I edited top writers when I was at Essence. Sure. And I edited articles together to make a magazine, 35. We had usually had about 35 articles in Essence every month. And I have 25 here, but I went through about 50 to get them. I went to the library here at the Douglas Truth. I, mm -hmm. I got a lot from there. Okay. And from you the camped out there a couple weekends and one day i one went day. and oh, okay. one, well, one day in particular i went and i got so many books i didn't know you could check out that many at one <laughs> right. time i learned myself that you could check out like 25 books at one time from there i didn't know that so i went through them some i couldn't use because they didn't have anything about reading and writing from that author or it, it most of them were novelists and maybe they hadn't written any nonfiction. so it took a while to to get them and it took even longer to get the permission to reprint them but it did come together in a way that I hope gives a history of reading and writing among African Americans from Frederick Douglass, as we mentioned, who uh, could not 
for whom it was against the law to learn to read and write, up to President Obama, who is first black president and avid reader and mega selling author. Right. I read Dreams from My Father uh, probably about a year and a half or two years before President Obama ran. For me, it was a love affair. And I was a, I was a young journalist. You worked and in the administration. I, I, well, right? I sure did. I actually I quit my job as a reporter within several months of having read his, his books. And within a few months uh, thereafter, I was working in Iowa on the presidential campaign. Oh, okay. um, so for me, it was his writing that uh -huh. actually un unleashed it. Like I said, uh, just a deep affection for his Mind, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't work. During, you know, I, I was a I was a young man. I was glorified intern, frankly, mm -hmm. um, like yourself, rubbing rubbing two paychecks together to pay the rent. You know, in D.C. when we got when we all got back from the campaign. Mm. But it was that writing for me and for so many of my age peers, mid twenties. You know, this this very special man who was mm -hmm. not only a statesman, and you could see he could give the speech, but he had this ability to sit down, think, and put his deepest self on paper in a way that we could digest. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, I'm curious. I've gone on a long, too long about him, but I'm curious what yeah. your take is, you know, whether it's him or whether it's some of the more contemporary black writers that you have in there. Um, I'm curious who's, for you, really speaking the most to you in that way, whether it's your, you know, generationally or just in terms of capturing the time that you've now lived on this planet. Well, one of my favorites in the book was Langston Hughes. And I just, it happens today is his birthday, now that right. I think of it, right. because his birthday is the same day as my dad's, February 1st, um, the day that we're talking here. Yeah. And um, he was also from Kansas, like my father, and his humor was so much like him. And he wanted to go to Howard University. He was working as a busboy in a ho hotel in Washington, D.C. Hence, busboys and poets. I don't know if you're yes, familiar with this. The, the cafe, yes. Cafe, busboys and poets. Really? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. When I go there now, I, I go. Um, my daughter are, lives um, nearby in, in Maryland. So I have been to busboys and poets named after him. That's right. And when he was a busboy, he wanted to be a poet. Right. And someone from Spokane, I did not know this guy, that Vachel Lindsay, mm. came to on a book tour. He was a poet. He appeared at the hotel. Langston Hughes wanted to go, but he knew it was segregated, so he was not able to get in. But what he did was took his poems and slid them under the man's plate when he was blessing the table oh, wow. and then ran out. Mm -hmm. And the next day, he found out by reading the newspaper that Bachel Lindsay said he had discovered a Negro busboy poet. Yeah. So that, he, that term I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he actually helped Langston further by taking his poems to Canaan who published them, and he and Langston Hughes was published by Conn for quite some time. Oh, I see. And um, eventually he was able to go to college, although he didn't go to Howard. He, um, I think he went to, I think he went to Temple. He uh, uh, was helped by someone from Howard who liked his poems, and when he quit that job, because he people were coming up trying to take his picture all the time, so he could hardly work. Right. So he quit the job, and uh, a student from Howard would come and take him to dinner and pick his brain, right. because he, he went back home, but his mom said, you can stay here but I'm not going to feed you. <laughs> so he had to go out with these, with people that would feed him. Would feed now him. he was so he was right. famous, but without money. Without but, money right. Yeah, and and that resonated with you. Just the, not necessarily the money part, but just the whole experience. 
I just thought, yeah, he was trying so hard to be uh, a writer, mm -hmm. and um, he took a big risk to put, he could have gotten fired if right. the guy hadn't liked him, you know, right. putting his poems under his plate. Now, I haven't ever put any poems under anybody's plate, but I did go through quite a few agents of the famous people that I was editing at Essence mm -hmm. to try to get published, and right. it just was not happening That's for me. That's the peril piece uh, yeah. to your book, the peril yeah. that one assumes when one tries to put one's own words out into the public, especially when right. you're coming from a less privileged position, whether it's yeah. busboy or yeah. African-American. Right. But I did, uh, I really liked, you mentioned um, Obama's book, and I really liked Dreams for My Father. Oh. Fortunately for me, my book, um, Song for My Father, my memoir of growing up here in Seattle, is on the shelves at the Seattle Public Library right next to Obama's oh, books because great. it's all of Obama <laughs> and Oliver. <laughs> and my, the titles are so similar. We were talking about, you know, the legacies of our fathers. Yeah. So, um, and, and coming from like a mixed that. family myself, my, my my biological father really split, frankly, mm. uh, when I was but an infant. And, you know, I have a great stepfather to come in. But it's just something that I've spent so much time in my life thinking about. And so when I read, um, I, I haven't read uh, Song for My Father, but I've read Dreams of My Father. Sure. I've read that was, your work here. Thank you. You're doing a lot of thinking about family, too. And I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about wellness and being centered, right? And, and where we come from, the roots that we develop, makes it totally different ballgame for us, whether we're going to be, it's going to be easy for us to center ourselves or whether it's not. And so it, it's interesting to see that you've contemplated that, that President Obama has contemplated that. So I wonder if there's any similarity there for you. The main thing I think with Obama is that he, that I love so much and what I got from his book is that he did the independent study himself to learn his cultural identity mm -hmm. and decide, he pretty much decided to be black, yeah. as one could say, yeah. from his heritage of being raised with the grandparents from Kansas and going to Hawaii and, and growing up in Indonesia. He did the work when he was in college at that time when one does a figure out who they're going to be and what just what am I going to be as an adult in that um, space between childhood, high school and adulthood, that, you know, sacred space, I think, of, of college, if one is so um, privileged to be able to have that four years yeah. of time to think. So he decided that he was going to, he read Martin Luther King, he read Malcolm, he read James Baldwin, he read all these people and said that in the book, that in his book, Dreams for My Father, that he it. pretty much, that that was cathartic for him. Yep, and conscious choice for yes, him too. a yes. conscious choice, absolutely. So uh, that's, that's the part that I really uh, so much admire, that he was a critical thinker. Mm -hmm. from, the, from a young age. Right. You know, you, speak, you mentioned college, and uh, another writer that you address, Ta-Nehisi Coates, mentioned, I heard an interview with him recently, who he said, I'll take the four years to read and party. But don't tell me what to read. I want. I want to read. Oh, when he went uh, to Howard. Just yeah. Let me, let me let me go in because I, I believe he was also uh, he he left early. Well, yes. Put it that way. And he said, you know, it, the problem he had was he wa he wanted to go to the parties and he wanted to read the books, but he wanted to read what he wanted to read, and he didn't mm -hmm. want to go through the same kind of old gates that everyone else was going through. Yeah. What is your uh, relationship to him in in the written word here? Uh, having Tanahashi Coates. Yeah. Actually, I met his father at the Baltimore Book Festival. His dad is a publisher of Black Classic Press and he's a publisher himself and he worked at Howard University as Ta-Nehisi says in his book and um, so I had met him actually I've never met Ta-Nehisi but I admire what he's doing at the Atlantic and the fact that because of he's so honest about uh, putting his opinion on paper and that he has a following. I mean, he's been able to cross over in a way that a lot of African-American writers have not and to get the book deals because of The Atlantic. 
And here's um, a, a Kevin Young, for example, that's now with The New Yorker as right. the poetry editor. Yep. So when that happens, then you get the following that gives you the entree into the book publishing, you right. see. So I really admire that he just stepped out there writing what he felt and that the and I praise the Atlantic for publishing right. whatever he wrote. Well, it's interesting. So a lot of folks, it doesn't matter the industry, right? I mean, you hear this, whether it's the tech industry or, or politics is that you get safe and secure and then you say mm. what you think. Mm. But he, his path seems to yeah. have been the opposite. Yeah. Which is he got himself to a place of, I presume, financial security and certainly career security based on saying what he thought. And in some sense, that inverts that. He, he's... Uh, taking the risk right away mm -hmm. and he's throwing it all out there. I got the excerpt from his first, from not it's not his first book, it's his second actually, but the third, the book he has out now, Eight mm -hmm. Years in Eight, yep. uh, eight Years in Power. Editing his different essays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says what you're what you're saying. Uh, it actually gives what oh, it's the eight years of Obama's presidency. Right. And in the first year, he was on the Tanahashi was on the unemployment line or something. Right. And then it said every year what he wrote about him and how his own popularity grew with the popularity of the president. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting how that happened and how the Atlantic opened that door for him. And of all of the authors that you catalog here, which is your personal favorite? Well, Toni Morrison is in the book, and I, I kind of went back and forth with her uh, because I had taken, I kind of cut and pasted two parts of an essay and was trying to move them around and stuff. And, and she has always been very gracious, even when I was at Essence. She wrote for Essence quite often. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you know, I've read, I read all her books, so she's, of course, the one I admire the most. But Nikki Giovanni is uh, the person that wrote my the foreword. I have to give her a shout out because when I was in college, College, I wrote her a letter saying that I wanted to interview her for a paper. And she said no, but she said it so nicely. I think I still have the letter somewhere <laughs> in my mother's house. There's something to yeah. it. rejection, a respectful. Yeah, so it's rejection. She took me seriously. She was like, I'm sorry, I just don't have time because I'm doing XYZ or whatever. But when I got to the magazines, every time I would ask to do anything, she said yes. So I ended up going to her house and I did a story on her. She has bookshelves like you have here, Horizon Books, where everything is in alphabetical order. Dewey, her whole basement was in Dewey Decimal you order. That in, the, yes. in the book, yeah. And uh, that's a special kind of mind, isn't it? Yes. To to need to do that, right? How to about feel that? the need, and then because she now knows where every book is. Every that. single one. It looked like a library in her basement, and she always she said that she liked to say yes. And fortunately for me, she did it when the magazine needed or wanted an article by or from her or about her. And fortunately for me, she did it again when I asked her to write the foreword. When I sent her the, the note, she sent the piece back before she said yes. She never said yes. She just sent she me the piece. She sent it back. Oh, that's yes. fabulous. And that's so rare yeah. now. Yeah. So when she was just here last week or so, I um, went to the Benaroya and set up there in the front so I could oh, see her. Did you have a chance to catch up? Yes, I did. And I got a little picture with her that I put on my Facebook page. And <laughs> Celebrities, yeah, they're just like us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's great. She's great. We had dinner and got to catch up with her. And I think we're going to be doing something together at the National African American Museum in Washington, D.C. in oh, that's early fabulous. summer. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So just to stay on Nikki Giovanni for a while, because we're both huge fans. <laughs> you cite one of her poems here. Would you like to, to read that real quick? Oh, yes. Well, the poem is from Is My House. And she says that English isn't a good language to express emotion through. 
mostly, I imagine, because people try to speak English instead of trying to speak through it. And I always, that always resonated with me because the ancestors who came from the Middle Passage from Africa to America were put on the slave ship mixed up. They couldn't even communicate in their native language to each other. And then they got here and had to learn the language, but couldn't learn to read and write it, right. only to speak it. Sure. And then, as Nikki said, they didn't really speak it because that wasn't their mother tongue. They were speaking through it mm -hmm. to communicate. Mm -hmm. How does that echo throughout the writers in your book? The writers in, in Black Ink are all pretty much elite, cream of the crop of African-American writers. So the, the Alice Walkers, Jamaica Kincaid, Terry McMillan, all of them have you know mastered. I didn't have to do any editing, that's for sure. Because <laughs> right. They have really mastered the language and bring forth their stories from the heart in a way that resonates in a powerful way. I, I want to speak with you a little bit about Seattle, right? So this is a Seattle sure. Issues uh, podcast, and you must have seen so much change. And so you've got what was effectively a logging town, and then now um, it's blown up. people from India, people <laughs> from the East Coast, techies, MBAs, uh, but then also, you know, there's this very distinctive arts, poetry, music mm. thing that's so Seattle, right? Whether it's from poetry to rock and roll and hip hop to the visual arts. So I'm curious, just with that as the background, how you feel like this city has changed and where do you think it's going? It has changed, as you mentioned, and as you would imagine, but it's very progressive. At least it's a progressive change. It's not like a city that's gone under and we're concerned that, you know, about our safety and right. the infrastructure falling apart and uh, no one wants to go visit. Everybody wants to come to Seattle. I have friends that are coming here to vacation now, you know. I can't kick them out fast enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm proud to be a Seattleite, a native Seattleite, born and bred. I'm very proud of, of Amazon. I know that a lot of people think Amazon's big brother, but I'm just so proud that Amazon Amazon is, is hiring so many people and um, helping the economy of Seattle to blossom and that other companies are coming here because they feel they have to be in Seattle in too, Seattle, that yeah. they may have been based in Silicon Valley, but they have a huge presence here mm -hmm. as a result. Mm -hmm. So, um, You're not the first guest, uh, presumably progressive. It's very easy to, to make Amazon a punching bag, and I have my own qualms with them too. Uh, but you're not the first guest that I've spoken with to say there are two sides to that, and there is a lot of creative destruction, a lot of uh, dynamism occurring largely due to Amazon. I think that Seattle has kept its character, though, as being the last outpost of the West right. in that way. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. we're still the rebels. Yeah. San it's Francisco still, has fallen. I yeah, think. yeah. <laughs> it's still raining here. You know, it was raining when I came. In. And I think because of that, the, the character of the city has maybe magnified that other people are finding out more about us other than just grunge. Mm -hmm. I, I just love it. It's just the best. If, if I'm not going to be... I was in New York. I feel like I, I was in New York, did all that cultural stuff there, been there, done that, and now I'm just really glad to be part of the renaissance, I guess maybe you might call it, of Seattle. Well, you know, we like to end every show with a segment we call, If You Care About, You Should. So go ahead and fill in the blanks for me. If you care about activism, you should read. The reason I say so is because most of the people in Black Ink talk about how, like Stokely Carmichael, for example, talks about how he, what he read in to inform him about Pan-Africanism and, mm -hmm. and to um, to enable him to coin the phrase black power. Uh, Martin Luther King talks about when he got books about Gandhi and learned about nonviolent 
he didn't that come didn't come in just out of his head. He actually did the research and the study on it. Alice Walker says the same thing. So to me, I feel that those that want to resist, which is a word I, I prefer to be an activist because I want people to be proactive rather than just reactive and resisting. Sure. To be proactive. And I think That's that neat. reading informs one on how to go about that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ann. Yeah, we'll I enjoyed it. On our, you know, next time you do another book, we'll get you back on. Well, thank you. And all the best with the podcast. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. That was Stephanie Stokes Oliver. Check out her latest, Black Ink, Literary Legends on the Peril, Power, and Pleasure of Reading and Writing. This has been Upzones. Today's sponsor was Horizon Books in Capitol Hill. Mention Upzones at the register for a 10% discount. Music by the Subcons. Opening poem segment courtesy of Anthony McPherson. Thanks to our producers, Brandon and Naboo. I I'm your host, Ian Martinez. This has been a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week. My favorite.